Hi, listeners. We're back with another episode of Understand South Carolina. This week, we're going to be talking about reopening South Carolina schools this fall. I'm Emery Parker. And I'm Emily Williams. We're going to be joined by education reporter Jenna Schifferl and projects reporter Avery Wilkes. The conversation about whether or not to reopen South Carolina schools is taken center stage as we're getting closer to what would typically be that back to school time. And then last week, Governor Henry McMaster stirred up controversy when he called on every public school in the state to reopen and offer parents the option of face to face learning. Education groups, teachers associations, and prominent state lawmakers and the state's largest school district, Greenville County, were all really quick to speak out against McMaster's call to reopen. What they were saying is they would only return when schools can ensure their safety. Uh, The Post and Courier actually spoke with more than two dozen parents across the state and they were conflicted. Uh, Some said they're not comfortable sending their kids back to school, but others said online learning just hasn't been working. Um, so I think we should start off with that press conference that the, the governor had where he he called for all schools in the state to offer in-person five-day-a-week instruction. Avery, I guess, can you, can you tell us a, about that press conference and, and what was interesting about that? What was, um, like, what was the reasoning that, that the governor gave? Yeah, I think the the first most interesting thing and the thing that almost every reporter picked up on was that uh, Superintendent of Education Molly Spearman was not there uh, and neither were any district teacher uh, education officials from around the state. This was Governor McMaster and several top Republican lawmakers from the House and Senate. Um, uh, and, and that was not by design, he had invited uh, several Democrats. He had invited Superintendent Spearman, and they chose not to come and support this plan, um, which which says a lot in and of itself. They spent you know forty five minutes laying out the reasoning for uh, for this decision. First and foremost, it's that in their opinion, virtual learning over the spring just simply hasn't worked. Um, uh, schools were not prepared at the time that schools shut down in March to. Uh, teach kids virtually to um, uh, or to continue that schooling through the end of the semester. The infrastructure just wasn't there. Uh, schools lost track of at least 10,000 students across the state uh, and, and and many more who simply fell behind on their learning because they lost interest or, uh, you know, weren't getting that, that face-to-face, in-person, hands-on teaching that so many students rely on. There are a few other points that Governor McMaster and uh, lawmakers made. Uh, students on, uh, you know, with learning disabilities or, or special needs sometimes really need in-person teaching in order to uh, actually advance in their schooling, um, especially, um, you, know, you know, students with attention deficit disorders. Uh, House Speaker Jay Lucas mentioned his son when he was going up through the public school system. Uh, needed a lot of help that he would not have gotten if this was all virtual uh, at the time. Uh, there, there are some other factors, you know, uh, the, the importance of teachers having eyes on students. Teachers often uh, are the ones who report abuse and neglect, bruises, um, things like that that they see. And, and obviously they can't do that uh, if, if uh, they're not seeing students every day. But, but really the main point was that uh, in their opinion, the experiment with virtual um, and take-home materials was an absolute failure. Mm-hmm. So, like you mentioned, uh, the state's 
education superintendent was not there. Can you elaborate on that more? What did she end up saying? What was her reasoning for for not being there at that press conference? Yeah, I talked to Superintendent Spearman right afterwards. And she said that the disagreement for her came down to the governor's insistence that schools remain open for five days a week uh, and that students uh, parents be allowed to send their students for the entire week. She said many school districts are simply not equipped to do that right now uh, because of high case counts of coronavirus in their districts, uh, the you know lack of space in their facilities, staffing issues, um, access to PPE, uh, face shields, and um, uh, partitions, and and so forth. They, they're just at this point in the summer not able to to do that safely and to promote social distancing and mask use. Uh, and so she thinks that there needs to be more flexibility that um, districts on the local level uh, and, and even potentially beyond that schools at their level need to be able to make that decision of, of how often to bring kids back. Uh, and, and when, you know, everyone agrees that in person is, is best and that, uh, you know, uh, the goal is to get students back five days a week. The question is when, and, and the governor was pretty adamant that it be five days a week with the start of the school year, um, you know, being September 8th. Uh, and, 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 you know, it, it, it comes down to a matter of flexibility, which seems small, but when you're talking about something like this, it's, it's a pretty important issue. Yeah, because one of the, one of the things that, that I thought was interesting in his press conference is the governor asked Superintendent Spearman to not approve any district plans that did not include five-day-a-week instruction. But just to, to be clear, that that's actually her call, right? So the, the governor can't order that. And and it sounds like she is going to grant that flexibility to, to districts because a lot of districts don't necessarily want to do that right now. Yeah, the, the governor does not have that authority currently. Yeah. Um, uh, and the reason that Superintendent Spearman has that authority is because it was granted to her as part of the continuing resolution that lawmakers passed earlier this uh this summer to to keep government functioning past July one um, without a without a full state budget, um, so there are some avenues by which that power could be taken from her. Uh, lawmakers gave that power to her, um, and by definition, they can intervene. Uh, and I asked the governor about that because I wanted to get that on the record, and he said, "You know, I said, could you potentially call on lawmakers later if they don't like the amount of in person education that, that's happening around the state?" And they said, yeah, uh, potentially they could come back and, and intervene. So that remains a possibility. That being said, this is very divisive among parents and, uh, as you noted, but also among lawmakers. There are plenty of lawmakers who think the governor is dead wrong on this, uh, as, as well as some who think he's completely right. So it's hard to say whether the General Assembly could really muster support for something like that. Right. This this week, Avery, I think you kind of compare this situation that McMaster is into a political tightrope, which, of course, is is true right to the entire situation with how he has handled the coronavirus pandemic. But this kind of being a, a really contentious point and one that has a clear timeline on it. Right. Um, so it seems like this in particular is is really perilous political ground for him, right? Can you kind of speak to that a little bit? Um, just just how this is, like I said, being a, a really intense point in that in that political moment that's already happening. 
Yeah, you know, I've covered the governor since he took office in January 2017. There has been no issue that has uh, been more divisive that has gained him more criticism than this. You know, education was a big deal um, last year. You know, the gas tax hike was pretty divisive when it happened, but nothing compares to this. You know, we're talking about four straight months of uh, people constantly criticizing him for, um, you know, for shutting down the state at all, for not shutting down soon enough, for ordering the reopening too early, for refusing to mandate mask use. Every decision he's made, he's gained a ton of critics as well as some supporters. Um, and I think when you when we get to a point now where the summer is over and we're we're almost coming back to the, like the real world and the case numbers are are still really bad and now it's becoming that kitchen table issue for a lot of parents. Um, you know, previously, you know, uh, schools closing was was an inconvenience for you know a couple months. Now we are looking at a year of school, and and this is becoming an issue that affects their kids in the long run. You know, if they have to have their kids schooled virtually, or uh, you know, if they feel like they have to send their kids to um, you know to school and, and potentially risk spreading the infection to their family members. This is becoming an issue that is hitting parents front and center uh, and, and something that they are almost certainly going to remember in the 2022 election. And every decision that the governor makes will be judged with the, uh, with the benefit of hindsight in two years. And he'll have you know, political opponents who can say, well, the governor didn't clearly you know, reopen too early or the governor uh, didn't open schools and, and and kids lost a year of learning when it turned out the virus, you know, uh, died out the next winter. You know, whoever his opponents will be are going to have all of that hindsight at their disposal. And they're going to be able to pick apart every decision he makes. Uh, he's just in a tough spot. I don't think many people envy mm-hmm. uh, the position he's in right now. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought it was really remarkable to watch the reaction um, to that press conference because, uh, I I can't recall seeing a time where I've I've seen such quick backlash to to something that McMaster has has said. Um, I think normally he you know a lot of a lot of officials around the state are, are willing to give him a lot of deference. Um, in particular, though, uh, the state's largest school district, which is actually up in Greenville County, um, the reaction there was really really surprising to me. Um, I wanted to give give the exact quote from or part of part of what their actual spokesperson said. Um, he said, he said, everything we've done up to this point has been with the understanding that whatever plan we come up with, we will put safety first. Then to hear Governor McMaster and his cronies basically throw caution to the wind and not mention a single time in his comments, the high rate of COVID-19 in the state. We couldn't believe it. That's pretty harsh. That's that's pretty harsh. Um, criticism coming from uh, the the official spokesperson for for the Greenville County School District. I, I can't can't recall seeing something like that in in um, recent the recent past. No, um, you don't typically see districts which are at the mercy in some respects of um, of the governor and of legislators for state funding uh, taking stances like that. And, uh, and I think it took. People in the governor's office off guard. Uh, the governor's chief of staff, Trey Walker, uh, essentially tattled on uh, on the the Greenville County School District and tagged some um, uh, uh, some of the, the the legislators from that area on Twitter and said, "Like, hey, do you, do you see what you see what they're doing here? Um, I wonder how you know some some uh, top lawmakers feel about that." Uh, 
Greenville County does have a little sway. I mean, they, they are the largest school district in the state with 77,000 students. Um, and, and maybe that gives them, you know, some, uh, some feeling that they, you know, are independent enough to, to, to put that out there. But, and it's not just been them. I mean, other school districts, uh, while they haven't used such strong words as that have, have, you know, ignored the governor, uh, since then and, and, and sort of done what they were going to do. I think, um, the superintendent Molly Spearman has given them cover to do that essentially insisting that she is not going to accept the governor's request to reject plans that don't include five day learning. Um, so we're at, we're at a strange time where these political subdivisions, uh, uh are, are sort of rebelling and open rebellion against the mm-hmm. governor. And, uh, I think maybe one of the reasons why Greenville County um, reacted the way they did is they actually have a, a pretty robust plan for um, how they how they wanted how they want to return um, to school this fall. They're they're actually going to distribute, I think, like seventy seven thousand Chromebooks to all all their students, which is is kind of interesting too because I think that that gets to another one of the points though that that Governor McMaster was making um, in his press conference was that there there is actually a pretty big um, divide across the state in terms of like access to the technology that's necessary. And so may- maybe that kind of highlights part of what the uh, divide is, because in places like Charleston and Greenville, the, you know, the state's urban centers, uh, of course, like internet access is much, much better than it is in, in some of the state's m- more rural areas. Jenna, what was what was the reaction like down here in Charleston? And, and what what are we seeing in the low country? What what's going on down here? Sure. So in response to Governor McMaster's um, announcement, this, the official statement from Charleston County School District was m- a much more mild version of what Greenville County School District put out. Um, it was less of a response was to his, his statement. It was more of a acknowledgement that they're going to continue to finalize their own plans, um, you know, using kind of the same boilerplate language that we're going to keep students and teachers top of mind and we'll do whatever that means. But really they kind of just skirted addressing uh, it head on and didn't really provide any direct criticism um, of governing master. But Charleston County schools are still trying to finalize what exactly um, school is going to look like in the fall. In that sense, they're a little bit behind Greenville who's, who's already laid out a lot of clear options on their website. And, you know, if X, Y, Z happens, then we'll do this. We're not there yet in Charleston County. Um, so board members voted on to initially give approval to a, a plan um, earlier this week. Um, but th- we're still in the final you know, the process of figuring it out. So there's a lot of questions, I think, that still remain unanswered, at least here in Charleston County. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's my understanding in, in Charleston County that they won't reopen classrooms for in-person learning unless the coronavirus situation in Charleston County improves. But do we know what that means? Do they have a measurement to say when, when would it trigger, you know, going back into the classroom in person? Yeah, that's a million dollar question right there. Um, And I think that's part of the frustration that some parents and teachers have kind of raised is that Charleston County has not committed to using um, certain metrics or a threshold that is going to guide their decision making. Um, 
GHEC um, created some of these metrics that some other school districts are kind of using as a baseline, determining whether the level of disease activity is low, medium, or high. Um, some districts are using that in order to shape their reopening plans. But Charleston County says, yes, they're, they have this uh, GHEC guidance. They're, they're, they don't want to commit to saying this is the end-all, be-all that we're going to use yet. They say they're working with MUSC and with other healthcare professionals to try and get some more granular, more specific metrics um, that they could use to help sort of guide their process. But they don't have that finalized yet, and they don't know when it will be finalized because um, I've asked, you know, if there's a timeline in place, and it doesn't seem like there is yet. And I think if we continue to approach um, mid-August when they really, really need to make a decision and let parents know then they're going to probably end up using the DHEC metrics by default. Um, so that's a really big unanswered question. That's kind of top of mind on a lot of uh, from parents and teachers. But yes, I mean, at, at this most recent school board meeting, the superintendent did say, um, you know, if we had to make a decision tomorrow, we, we could not bring students back in person. Um, and that was kind of echoed by a couple other board members who were trying to get her to say that on the record to kind of... Um, just kind of put at ease some of the fears um, that teachers have raised, which we've seen a lot of in the past week. Um, so she made this kind of sweeping statement, you know, um, you know, if the cases don't improve or if they stay the same, you know, we probably will not be able to do this. Um, but the final plan remains a mystery. Um, like I said, they did approve an initial version. Um, but parents are just kind of grasping at straws right now trying to figure out what exactly that means uh, for their child, I guess. Have there been conversations about what it would look like if students are coming back in the classrooms in terms of would they wear masks? Would there be um, maybe temperature screenings or anything like that? Have they discussed that yet or are they not to that point? Yeah, so they definitely have had these discussions, um, and some of them were laid out in their initial plan that they did give um, approval to on Monday. Um, it still needs, they're probably going to tweak it a bit before it comes back to the board on the 27th for another final vote. Um, but even then, when they approve that plan, kind of going back to what I was saying earlier, is that they can put this plan in they can have this plan approved, but it still doesn't answer whether or not they're going to start the school year online because right. the plan pretty much states we're going to bring, if possible, if safety permissions uh, allow, we're going to bring as many students as we can back to the classroom five days a week. We can do that in about half of the schools is what they're estimating, that we can bring everyone back five days a week. That is if the conditions allow it. Um, the other half of schools, because of their classroom sizes, because of school bus capacity or, you know, availability, because of um, just how many students are enrolled, probably can't do that. And that's, they'll use a, a hybrid approach where some students attend Monday, Tuesday, the rest attend Thursday, Friday. Anyways, I'm, I'm gearing, I wanted to give that background before I kind of get into what the classrooms would look like for those students who, who do come into the classroom. Um, masks would be... Uh, you know, it's a, it would be expected that masks be worn um, entering and exiting the building or as you move around the building, as well as if you have to get up out of your desk to go um, to do something in the classroom, you need to put it on. But the idea is if you're sitting at your desk, you would be able to take it off because the desks would be either spaced six feet apart or in the case of a lot of elementary schools, 
they are putting them in sort of quad formations um, where four desks will be put in a square, but there'll be plexiglass dividers um, in between each, each side. Um, so that's what we're going to see a lot of in middle schools. They're, they're hoping that these dividers will, you know, prevent any droplets or things like that um, from making it across the table to other students. Um, but yeah, the, otherwise, um, they're going to turning off normal water fountains. Um, then they'll be, they're trying to install at least one uh, water bottle refill station at each school. Um, teachers are strongly encouraged to get tested before they return. They have not made really a decision yet on students, although in the initial plan um, that they released, it, it didn't seem like they're going to require students to get tested. Um, students are going to be eating lunch in the classrooms, most likely, to minimize contact. They're also will probably be staying in the classroom more than they would. And they're going to rotate the teachers through. Um, that's sort of what we know so far. We know it's going to be different. We know there's going to be a lot of changes and they're really trying to limit the movement of students, I think, to try and minimize the risk. Mm -hmm. It is still so bizarre, even though so many things are really strange right now, just to think of kids at the quad desks with, plexiglass in, in between them. And I'm sure that getting kids to wear masks all the time will be challenging as well. It's just um, just really strange to think of all of those kinds of changes. But of course, there's so many details. Uh, you, you don't think about the school environment until you're faced with that task of coming up with ways to bring them back, you know, while still mm -hmm. following all of these recommendations. It's It just seems like one of the most complicated things to do right now send kids to school, which is obviously why this has become uh, such a, a controversial and complicated issue. So I, I want to get into some of the conversations that both of you had with with parents and that some other reporters had with parents too. So I guess just first of all, could, could one of you explain um, how y'all reported that, that story last week? Because there were a lot of interviews with parents from different parts of the state. It was kind of a big team effort piece. So could one of you just kind of explain how you um, reported that? Um, yeah, I, I, I was told we were going to do the story around, I think, 10 a.m. And uh, I was told basically that I was going to be writing it, but that I had like a team of reporters um, across the state at my disposal, which is cool because that's like the first time we've gotten to do something like this with uh since we opened the greenville and myrtle beach bureaus i'm obviously in columbia jenna's in charleston um and so uh, the first thing i did was put out a call on twitter and on facebook for any teachers or people who know teachers to um, reach out and talk about this press conference that just happened the day before um i kind of expected like maybe maybe like three or four people uh some of which you know um i would i will probably be friends of mine that i wouldn't even use for the story um, but that tweet took off. It got like a hundred and something retweets and shares and even people who hadn't seen it, uh, other, other people saw it and told teacher friends that they knew to do it. Uh, so the, the response was overwhelming. Um, and then I reached out to Jenna, to Adam Benson, to Tyler Fleming and Myrtle Beach, to Anna Mitchell, um, other people in the Greenville Bureau. And we sort of created this like team to tackle this. Uh, and we spread up, you know, we split up all the teachers of somebody emailed me from Charleston. I sent it to Jenna and vice versa. And so it, it was really this collaborative effort uh, that, that really just worked 
like a well-oiled machine. Um, and even, even as we were done writing the story, the responses kept coming in. People kept emailing. Uh, and I had to uh, respond to all of them and just say, hey, like, I appreciate it. Uh, but we, we, <laughs> we're done with the story and we'll keep you in mind for next time. Um, and I think what we found was the response was, was pretty split. Uh, people were, were torn personally, not, not just, you know, some people were on one side and some people were on the other side, but people were, were agonizing over this decision. A lot of people were because they were put in that position where they have to decide whether to prioritize, uh, their child's health, their family's health, uh, and, and, and sort of weigh those risks of COVID-19 and all that they're hearing about the death rate and the infection rate and, you know, advice from public health agencies and, you know, their child's education. And that is a tough position for any parent to be in. Um, and, and, you know, like I said, it, it was not just some people are for it, some people against it. Most everyone that we spoke to had a range of feelings. And, and I think that's why we got such a response. People just wanted to talk about this. People wanted to vent. Jenna, what were you, what were you hearing? Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. There was, I didn't talk to anyone that really was so cut and dry. Actually, maybe one person that I spoke to was like, had already kind of decided that she wanted to send her kids back for in-person because they had really, really struggled um, with the online learning. But, you know, everyone recognized that there is a risk involved with that. And they did fear, um, you know, about the unknown, I think was a, a, a big aspect that many of them especially in Charleston County, as I said, where, where the plan is kind of unfinished um, and we're swiftly approaching when students were expected to start school. Um, and it's, it's likely going to be later than that now. But yeah, to echo what Avery said, it was, it's, it was truly, uh, you know, truly interesting to see just how much parents, how much time a lot of parents had thought about this. Um, because it's, it's a huge decision and there's so many other factors involved. Um, I spoke to one parent who was like, if they push back the start of school, then we have to arrange another month of childcare that we weren't planning on. It's like, it's, there's so many facets of it that, you know, people might not think about, especially if you don't have kids in the school system. Um, so yeah, it, it was, um, truly a, a mixed bag, I think, uh, from, from the parents I spoke to as well. Yeah, I'm I'm 27. I don't have kids. My sister is a public school teacher, uh, and so I kind of have that perspective that I hear a lot. But, um, but realizing that this is more than just a decision about where you send your kids to school or whether you send them to school, but it's also about like, yeah, like childcare. Like, what do you? How can you go to work? Uh, you know, if you work from home, are are you going to have to also uh, be a part time teacher? Um, there's there's so much of this that. Um, that goes into that decision that I just didn't consider as as someone who doesn't have kids yet. Yeah, I thought it was interesting to read through just so many of the different examples and their specific experiences and a lot of commonalities for those parents, of course, but but each, you know, just a, a slightly different situation, you know, with different things to consider for each one. Were there any specifics that that stuck out that stuck out to either of you any um, parents' experiences that you know you thought were a good example to share to just kind of communicate to people the kind of decisions that these parents are going through. I, I thought it was interesting how much research some of them had done. Uh, I talked to one parent who had literally like looked up different pediatrics doctors and, and what they were saying about the risks, um, and 
and how hands-on a role parents had taken uh, in their in their kids' education. And you know, like the, the the lead anecdote for that story was a parent in Lancaster who, you know, for all accounts, did her best. You know, tried to teach her kid and and just could not uh, persuade him to pay attention and to and to be engaged with it. And what was also kind of taken aback at the fact that, you know, she's 28 years old and she can't teach kindergarten materials because she just, it's one thing knowing, you know, how to count. It's another thing teaching your kid how to count. Uh, and she was a substitute teacher and still struggled just in a one-on-one setting to make that work. Um, and, and, you know, there's, there's just a lot of challenges and difficulties to that, that I, uh, that I hadn't, you know, experienced in my own life that, that it was interesting to hear from, from parents. Going off that, the same thing is I spoke with a, um, a father of a kindergarten student. And so same, I mean, you say counting, learning how to count, you know, has its own challenges. Imagine trying to teach a kid to read. Um, it is really, really tough. And we've covered that before the, the challenges, um, you know, the parent I spoke to, you said he wasn't as concerned about, you know, his, his son falling behind academically. You know, he was kind of confident that they'll be able to, to make progress next year. Um, he was more concerned about the social aspect um, and that how a lot of these kids, um, you learn from others, you, you know, you learn by mimicking other students. And that's a whole aspect that's also missed um, when you're at home. Uh, I spoke with another parent that kind of stuck out in my mind. He's a healthcare professional and he was just brutally honest about his, some of his kids who were, one of them was eight years old. And he said, like, she doesn't, she still doesn't know how to cover her sneeze properly. Um, you know, and he's like, I'm not trying to like to embarrass her or anything, but how can you expect a group of 15 to 20 students in one room all sneak, you know, use these proper hygiene protocol? You can't, I mean, they're kids a lot of time, you know? And so that's really, um, that's something that stood out to me as well. Whenever we talk about even putting kids in a room with the plexiglass dividers, they're, they're putting about 20, they can fit 20 kids in a classroom when they use those dividers and stuff. So it's kind of things like that, um, that I think are certainly top of mind. Seems like one of the challenging things too, is just, we're still learning about kids and this virus and how they can contract it and, um, and spread it to others. And, and also you have such a range right? Um, from kindergarten to 12th grade, you, you have adults there, you know, even though uh, they are juveniles, but in terms of, uh, you know, possibly uh, transmitting the virus, but also being able to co- conduct themselves and be careful, you know, there's such a range from, obviously, like you said, having an eight-year-old and and wanting them to, you know, cover a sneeze, wear a mask versus an eight, 18-year-old. Uh, there's just such a, there's such a range there. Um, and and just so many different questions to think of. I uh, w- want to kind of turn a little bit too to what you're hearing from teachers who, of course, have potentially will be with students maybe five days uh, a week for for some people. Um, Jenna, I know you have written specifically about what teachers are, are saying in in Charleston County. What are you hearing? And and are are teachers d- divided in any way? Do they seem to mostly be in agreement? What does that look like right now? So let's just say all, you know, most, if not all of the teachers I've spoken to in Charleston County are very frustrated right now. Um, okay. I have all the ones I've spoke to have been advocating for the district 
to start online. Um, there's, they say, you know, district wide on time online is kind of their rallying cry. They want to start on time. They don't want to push the start date back to September 8th. Um, like it looks like they're, they probably will do that. Um, there's more than 1600, uh, teachers or faculty or staff, um, in Charleston County schools that have signed, um, a petition lobbying district to choose that, um, that option. Um, a lot of them say that they feel like their voices haven't been heard. And I don't think this is unique to Charleston County. I I will say that. I think this is across the state. Um, I think a lot of teachers felt like they maybe they weren't included in the process as much. And the emphasis has been a lot on parent choice, um, but not as much on teacher choice. That's kind of seems to be a recurring theme I'm hearing, but we know that there's a good chunk, like I said, over 1600 employees in Charleston County school district are not happy um, with what the district kind of, is currently presenting and they're advocating for this third option. So a petition was started um, last week and it it gained traction really quickly. Um, It was kind of created in response to actually a district survey that was sent out asking teachers to commit to two options. One, I am comfortable, you know, I will return for the fall uh, regardless, you know, for any uh, CCSD safe restart model, basically. And their other option was, I'm not returning, and I will talk to my supervisor about this immediately. So a lot of pressure uh, pressure there, teachers felt, um, was for them to commit to saying, yes, I'll, I'll do it, whatever model is chosen, or I'm resigning. Um, yeah. Was there any other option? Those were the two options. Oh, on this um, survey? on this survey that the district sent out and then they wanted teachers to fill out. And there's been similar surveys sent out, I know in Berkeley County as well. So um, I don't, I can't speak for the other counties, but trying to get a sense of, they're using it to try and get a sense of how many teachers, you know, for planning purposes. So, um, and the district said, when I kind of asked about that and the response to teachers who felt like they were kind of cornered into making a decision, that's why they're advocating for this option three, which is an online start. Um, and then an online start, and then they're hoping to eventually return to in person after the first nine weeks and after we can monitor the cases. But the district said we needed, you know, school principals needed this information for planning purposes, for their staffing levels, because that determines everything else. Um, and they also said that we wanted, we, we included any safe, re- you know, an online start could be included in that first option. Like that's, we said any safe restart option. So that online option that p- teachers are, are advocating for is technically included in that survey. Um, but that was, you know, I think some teachers didn't really see it that way. And um, so, you know, there's a lot of frustration, I guess, um, from what I've heard. Kind of going back to where we started this conversation with, uh, the governor and his statement of wanting schools to go back. What are we hearing from teachers and and from from parents as well in terms of how they feel about the state leadership in terms of this decision? Um, I guess putting in on on parent choice. Some people it may 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 like that, to, or I guess it could make it difficult, you know, to for that decision to be on on the parents. So, what are you both hearing in terms of of that specifically, in terms of what they think of the leadership in this situation? I I, I heard a lot of frustration um, that uh, I, I guess with, with with the governor, with um, you know, with DHEC, with with really just this like government 
whatever government is, whoever government is to, to each person for letting us get to this point. Um, you know, um, to, to a lot of parents, you know, it should have never escalated to now when you look at other countries and other states where case numbers have fallen off, uh, plateaued, uh, been under control. And just to look at South Carolina, where we did a very brief shutdown that seemed to be working. And then we quit, we reopened everybody, um, not, not just, not just government, not just businesses, but everybody, you know, kind of returned to uh, normalcy or at least tried to, uh, without great mask usage. And, you know, um, uh, like science would indicate our case numbers skyrocketed and haven't really come back down. Uh, and so there, there was a clear sense of frustration among parents we spoke with, including some that we quoted, um, you know, in, in the story about, the fact that they now, they now, it's their choice. It's not, it's not, oh, great. We have a choice. We can pick and choose. It's no, now you're making me make a choice mm-hmm. uh, in this, in this trying time uh, about either prioritizing my family's health or my child's education, because you wouldn't bite the bullet early on, because you wouldn't issue uh, a mask mandate, because you wouldn't shut down the economy uh, long enough to actually make it work. Uh, one, one parent told me it, it's kind of like antibiotics, you know, um, you, uh, just because you're feeling better doesn't mean you stop taking them. You know, you keep mm-hmm. taking them for the seven days or the ten days uh, until you know uh, until they run out. Uh, and 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 that was the analogy he used with with the shutdown. So that that's the kind of frustration that that I saw, and I'm sure Jenna saw as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I a lot of the parents I spoke to echoed exactly the same sentiment. Um, the frustration was deeper. It went beyond just the press conference that kind of that lit the, the fire or sparked some of the frustrations was uh, his call for a full return five days a week in, you know, in-person instruction. Um, that, but that was, that wasn't, you know, uh, the first time it, it was a lot of other things rolled up into that. But I also spoke to, to a couple, one or two parents who were, uh, who respected, um, him taking center stage and, and, and calling on schools to do that. So yeah, I, I heard more frustrations than I did positive responses, but, and the ones that I did hear, um, who were frustrated kind of tied it back to, you know, this has been months in the making. This is not a new, a new thing. So, well, I think that's, um, on that note, probably, a, a where we need to wrap this uh, episode up. Um, <clears throat> thank you, Jenna and Avery for joining us. Um, Avery, can you tell listeners what the best way to get in touch with you is? Um, yeah, you can email me at uh, awilks at postandcourier.com. That's A-W-I-L-K-S, no E in Wilkes. And same question, Jenna. Yeah, you can reach me at jshifferl, uh, that's S-C-H-I-F-E-R-L at postandcourier.com. And I think um, just like that story we were talking about with parents goes to show when people, you know, reach out, when we put that call out for people to share, it really does help us give a better idea of what people around the state are thinking, you know, for stories like this that really impact them. So definitely when we say at the end of episodes, these are the ways to reach out to reporters, you know, please do. We always um, love to hear from people. It helps us Mm -hmm. do our work. And on that note, um, if you have any comments or questions or suggestions for this podcast, 
Uh, you can find us on Twitter. We are at understandsc, all one word. Reach out to us. Like like Emily was saying, um, that's one of the best resources for us to, to help tell stories better is when people actually get in touch with us and, and tell us what's going on in, in their lives. Um, so we definitely welcome that feedback, however you want to send it to us. Anyway, thanks. Thanks so much for listening. And uh, we will be back again next week. All right. And that's all. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier in Charleston. Our theme song is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music by searching for Billy. That's with an IE Fountain on Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. You can get in touch with us by emailing understandsc at postandcourier.com or, of course, you can tweet at us with any questions or comments. And if you're a fan of the show, please take a second to like us and leave a rating on the Apple Podcast Store. See y'all later.